And we are skipping a little chunk of this book for now. Uh, We looked at chapter 19 last week, and uh, beginning in chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments and some more instructions from God in the chapters that follow that. And we are going to come back. Uh, We're going to spend the summer in the Ten Commandments. Uh, But for the rest of May, we're going to pick up some of the other narrative and story portions of the book of Exodus, and we will come back uh, to the law this summer and spend some time in what God has to say to us there. So join me now in Exodus uh, chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Remember, the people are at Mount Sinai. They have just received the law, and this is what happens after that initial gift. Exodus 24, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice, And said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Let's pray. Father, what what an incredible text. The, The things that happen in the space of these few verses. And we, we want, as we come to these words, uh, to, to have understanding, to have clarity, uh, but, but even more to, to have these words shape us, form and influence the way that we live. And so we ask for your help. We know that that shaping work doesn't happen uh, by my words. It happens by the power of your Spirit. And so we do pray for the work of your Spirit. uh, That He would open us and that He would transform us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) When I was young, uh, my family for a few years lived in northern Georgia. Uh, near the city of Augusta. And and one day, my brother and I were in the car with my dad, and I I don't remember where we were going, but we happened upon the entrance to Augusta National. 
right? Famous, gorgeous golf course where the Masters tournament is played. And, and as we drove past Augusta National, my dad said, hey boys, look, it's Augusta National. That's where they play the Masters. Let's go see it. And so he, he turns the car around and, and we pull into the driveway of this golf course and there's a gate, but we don't even get close to the gate before our car is swarmed with what seemed like the secret service. Like men talking into their, you know, they're talking into their, and they make it very clear, no, you will not come in and see this golf course. Augusta National is one of the most exclusive places in the world. And doesn't this part of Exodus feel a little bit like that? Doesn't Mount Sinai seem like an even more exclusive place? God comes down supposedly to dwell with His people, but He keeps them at arm's distance. He puts a boundary around the mountain He allows a few people to come halfway up and only one person to come all the way to the top. Seems like a very, very exclusive place. And and doesn't, doesn't that confirm some of our suspicions about religion? Some of our culture's suspicion about religion? That that it was built not to bring people in, but to keep them out, to exclude them. And doesn't that disturb those of us who want to be close to God? I mean, I think most of us are here in this room because there is at least some desire to be near to God. Near enough, maybe even to see Him like Moses and the leaders of Israel saw Him. So with that tension in place, I want us to come to this text and ask a couple of questions. First, why should we want to see God? And then second, how can we see God? So first of all, why? With all of the things that we could talk about this morning, with all of the things that have happened in your life this week, why talk about seeing God? Well, think for a moment about the vision that Moses and the leaders are given in verses 9 to 11. It says they came up the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. But recognize that In Scripture, when people see God, they never see Him completely. They get a glimpse of something. In fact, a few chapters later in Exodus 33, God will say to Moses, No one has seen my face. And so it's important that when we see these visions of God, we pay attention to the details of what people see. So notice the details here. There are feet and blue stone, right? Feet resting on blue stone. This is a royal image. 
It is the king on his throne, and and these men, they see the feet of the king. And where are his feet resting? On the sky. The king sits on his throne, and he puts his feet on the sky. This is a view of transcendence. One who is above one who is beyond, one who rules over all things in majestic beauty. Which is an interesting sight. I'd like to see that. But we should want to see God not just out of curiosity, not not as some interesting museum piece. Notice what happens next. Verse 11. They beheld God... And then what? They ate and they drank. Seeing, this type of seeing leads to tasting. This is a nourishing beauty. And more than nourishment, this scene is about welcome. These men not only view transcendence, They experience hospitable transcendence. They see God's throne and then they find themselves a part of His throne room. And they find a kind of home there. Where they are are fed. Where they eat and drink with God. I mentioned last week that my wife and daughter read the first book in in the Harry Potter series. Well, they have moved on to Narnia. And last week, uh, Jess read to Georgia the beginning of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And that story is set in motion when Edmund and Lucy stand with their grumpy cousin Eustace and look at a painting. It's the painting of a ship. And then all of a sudden, They're in the painting. They're part of it. They're on the ship. That reminds me of this scene. The leaders of Israel see God's majesty. And then they find themselves a part of His majesty. And that is why Scripture pulses with the desire to see God. And that's why we should join that longing. It's a desire that we have, whether we attach it to God or not. We long to be be a part of something larger. To be a part of a bigger meaning for our lives in this world. If you pay attention, you can see it all around us in our culture. Even in our attraction to sports. I remember reading last summer, during the World Cup, an article uh, by Brian Phillips. And he was talking about the scale of that event. That almost a billion, not a million, a billion people would watch the final of the World Cup. And he's talking about how remarkable it was. To watch something like that and realize that one moment, one moment on the pitch 
I almost said feel, but pitch is the correct soccer vernacular. One moment on the pitch can alter the emotions of a billion people. And he, and he, he wrote this. He said, it's like a bright line connecting you to the human race. What's that? That is an impulse to transcendent belonging. The very human desire to be welcomed by something larger than ourselves. And while sports can be good, viewing sports can be a good thing, playing sports can be a good thing, they cannot fulfill that desire. And neither can your work, neither can being a mom, neither can romance or the arts or entertainment or family or friendships or any other element of our lives. All good things, but not enough. Not enough to give us that desire for transcendent belonging because we were made to see God. To be welcomed by Him. To know Him as the true source of our life and joy and to become a part of His mission in the world. That's why we should want to see Him. But there are still a number of problems. There's the problem of exclusivity. Even here in Exodus chapter 24, only a small fraction of the people get this vision. And maybe even more than that, you have a hint of it here, but then then throughout the Bible, when people get a glimpse of God, the first words out of their mouth have to do with the fear of dying. So there are a number of problems with seeing God. And so we need to ask a second question. How is it possible? How can we see Him? And notice the the way this passage is structured. So verse 1 and 2, invitation. Right? God invites Moses and the leaders up to the mountain. Then, verses 9 to 11, party. Okay, Moses and the leaders go up into the mountain and they eat and drink with God. But what happens in between? Words from and to God, an altar, pillars, sacrifices, and blood. And the point of that structure is that what happens in between the invitation and the party is what makes the party possible. These symbolic actions communicate how we can see God. And so what do they communicate? What do they say? I think blood is probably the most startling element of this ritual for us. And so let's start there. Blood on the altar. The altar which represents God and His presence with His people. And blood on the people. 
right? Most likely on these 12 pillars, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And where does that blood come from? It comes from the sacrifices, right? Two types of sacrifices. First of all, burnt offerings. This is where the whole animal was consumed by the fire. And it was a symbol of whole and complete devotion. And then second type of sacrifice, peace offerings. Or sometimes called fellowship offerings. Where part of the, part of the animal was consumed by the fire, but then part was eaten by the one who made the offering. As a symbol of companionship, of, of friendship, of deep relational connection. So see the picture. This once again is a covenant ceremony. Blood on the altar. God has absolutely, fully committed Himself to His people. He has demonstrated that commitment by rescuing them from Egypt. And He is in the law asking for their response. Blood on the people. They respond saying, yes, we are committed. We are loyal. We will do all that you say. All that you want us to do, we will do. And that creates a profound companionship. Friendship between God and His people, which then allows Moses and the leaders as representatives of the people to ascend the mountain. And commune with God. Undivided loyalty produces life-giving intimacy. Covenant produces communion. And I hope this image isn't offensive, but, but it is the closest thing that I can come up with as an analogy. The marriage vows lead to the wedding night. So this ritual in Exodus chapter 24, it is a call and response song. It's call and response music between God and His people. And it is a song that sings a profound, deep, mutual commitment. Loyalty. And if we would see God, we must join the song. We must join this music of loyalty, of commitment. That raises another problem. Because you can sing, I'm committed, I'm loyal, but we don't live that way. And neither did the nation of Israel. It's like one of those overwrought love songs that aren't true of anyone's relationship. But God knew that about His people. And he knows that about us. So he gave to them another type of sacrifice. Where blood meant not only commitment. It it meant not only communion. But it meant covering. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Cleansing. And he has given to us one ultimate, final sacrifice in His Son Jesus who lived the life of perfect, complete loyalty, 
commitment to His Father, but then died the death of our infidelity so that His blood could cover us. As we heard in the assurance of pardon this morning, so that His blood could sprinkle clean our evil consciences. So that He could then bring us into deep communion with the Father. The transcendent belonging for which He made us. How can we see God? It's by faith in Jesus. It's by faith in Jesus. The Gospel of John in the New Testament opens with John saying, The Word became flesh. God took on His body and we beheld. We saw His glory. You know what that means for us? That means for us, for now, we see with our ears. We see by hearing what John has to say, what Scripture has to say about Jesus and who He is and what He has done and how we should live in response to Him. That's how we see God for now, with our ears. But not only that, not only do we see God with our ears, we see God through our community the church. See, John, he, he wrote some letters as well as a gospel. And, and in the first one, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, no one has seen God, which completely deflates my sermon, right? <laughs> no one has seen God. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, no one has seen God, but if we, church, center point, if we love one another, God of Abides with us, and his love is perfected in us. You see the point? You can't fully see God for now, but you can get glimpses, and you get glimpses in each other as you speak and live in ways that express love for each other in the Christian community. John wrote not only a gospel, he wrote not only letters, he wrote the final book of our New Testament, the book of Revelation. And in that book, he makes it very clear that one day we will, not with our ears, but with resurrected eyes, we will see our God in all of His majesty, in all of His beauty. And we will eat and drink and we will be made whole. And all things will be made new in the light of His presence. I have a friend. His name is Ken. And Ken's from Mississippi, and so we call him Ken. And, uh, and Ken, Ken loves golf. And his family, for his 40th birthday, gave him a trip to Scotland to play some of the most historic courses in the birthplace of that game. And he told me about playing at the course at St. Andrews. And he said, I didn't realize this, but St. Andrews is a public course. And so 
everyone, it's open to everyone, and, and then every once in a while they open it to anyone for, for reasons other than golf. So that at certain times in the week, families come and they picnic on the greens of the golf course in St. Andrews. And he was telling me this while we were watching the Masters Tournament on TV. And I thought, what a contrast. What a difference between Augusta National and St. Andrews. That's the change that Jesus has made to Mount Sinai. That's the change He has made to this intimidating mountain. He has thrown open the gates. He has torn the veil. He has told the security guards to stand down. And with his battered but resurrected body, he says, come, welcome, taste, see the grace and glory of God. Yes, glimpses now, but one day in eternal fullness. Let's pray.